Welcome to Recovery Plus Podcast. Fuck yesterday, focus on today. I'm your host, Dr. Mainly Hannon. Here, we celebrate and honor people in recovery one conversation at a time. Let's talk. Welcome back. This is episode 40. When we go to a doctor's office, we see a lot of framed degrees, certifications, awards, etc. It's easy to see doctors as other or not human or infallible. What we do not see or hear about is when doctors actually have similar experiences as their patients, similar experiences with depression or some other medical or mental health issue. And we often don't hear how it has positively impacted their patient care. My next guest is that type of doctor. Dr. Chuck Smith is a co-author of the book, Understanding Addiction, Knowing Science, No Stigma. Dr. Smith is an expert in the field of addiction medicine. He works as an addictionologist in South Florida, where he provides patient care, including detox, residential and outpatient management of addictive diseases. He is also a graduate of Marshall University and the West Virginia School of Osteopathic Medicine, and he completed an addiction medicine fellowship at the University of Florida. Dr. Smith also has firsthand experience with the humiliation and shame that accompanies substance use disorder. Dr. Smith had a successful medical practice for 26 years and lost everything, including his ability to practice medicine, due to his addiction to pills and alcohol. He spent seven years to recover and heal. He sought treatment, then lived in a sober living house and worked as a certified drug and alcohol counselor. He then got into a fellowship in addiction medicine. He discovered that understanding the science of addiction allowed him to drop his own feelings of shame and guilt. Now he practices medicine and teaches other physicians addiction medicine and what life-saving questions to ask patients. He believes you can't think your way into sober living but you can live your way into sober thinking. Take a listen to Dr. Smith's journey about resilience and recovery. Hi, Dr. Smith. Thank you so much for coming on my podcast. Well, thank you, Dr. Hen. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Well, I just want to just get right into it and tell me a little bit about what life was like before sobriety for you personally. I actually think about that a lot. It, w- it was difficult. Even all the way back to my younger years, uh, an undergraduate college, I was a binge drinker. Mm. I suffered severe hangovers. It was a struggle to try to be academically successful at all. And and I think back on those years many times, just how, what a hole I dug myself and how difficult it was to, Mm -hmm. to try to get anything accomplished because of alcohol and other substances. But this continued, right, as a doctor. Yes, it was, it was interesting. As I started medical school, I found out very quickly, if I didn't change my drinking patterns, I wasn't going to get through school. That, that became apparent in the very first semester. So I basically did not drink very much. I might drink two or three mm-hmm. times a year. But interestingly, when I did drink, I got intoxicated. I drank too much, but I didn't do it very often. Mm -hmm. But as many of us do, I actually got depressed. I missed my substance. And I went through some depression, some grief, if if you will, from not drinking. I look back on those medical school years that way. Then I really fell in love with medicine and worked for a few years and did not drink much at all. But I wasn't willing to give up the thoughts that I could drink. So, I hit in my 30s, 
with some stress came along in my life, marital stress, work stress, financial stress. I turned back to alcohol and the next 20 years that went on pretty much uncurtailed and life was hard. I remember it. It was hard to put one foot in front of the other. It was hard to make any financial decisions. It was certainly hard to function as a professional. But yet you did. I did. I, how They told me when I got to rehab, they said, well, you're a high-functioning addict. And I said, well, let me tell you one thing. It's not easy. <laughs> it's not easy. It's not easy to function at that level. So no. tell me a little bit, how did you get into treatment? This time, well, after many years of diverting opiates myself, uh, and also abusing alcohol over the years, and, and uh, certainly getting involved in the criminal justice system with a couple of DUIs and pulled over many other times than that. But in on November the twenty second, two thousand nine, I had a visit from two very nice drug enforcement agents, oh, and. Uh, they showed up at the state clinic where I was working in West Virginia and uh, said, we just like to know what's wrong with you. Because they'd been watching me for a while. They knew I was diverting opiates to myself. They thought maybe I was selling them or, or the sure. you know, drug dealer, but they, they, there was no evidence of that. So I just told them I was very sick and I needed help. And that was the intervention that got me to treatment. I look back on it, I think it took that firm and that style of a, an intervention for me because if you were my friend, if you were my colleague, or if you were my family member and you attempted an intervention, I simply got you out of my life. Well, that happened though, right? As you proceeded to continue in your addiction, you had your p colleagues yes. be concerned, right? Yes, I had colleagues concerned, so I distanced myself from them. I moved to different practice locations. I moved to different practice styles. I did many different things. But if you didn't enable my disease, I cut you out of my life. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So a, a Mack truck basically had to stop you. So you got raided exactly. at your clinic. Is that right? So what, like doing before the, the raid, you knew you were providing services like medical care for clients. Um what was that disconnect with serving clients and providing medical treatment or some form of medical care well, and using? That's the whole cycle of addiction where the, the shroud of shame and guilt mm -hmm. that I knew, I knew what I was doing and I knew how it was affecting me as best I could under the influence. Uh, and the only way to deal with that shame and guilt, the only coping mechanism, which I use that word we use in treatment all the time, mm -hmm. my coping mechanism was alcohol and drugs. And that mm -hmm. was all I had. So, yes, it, it was. It caused me uh, excessive worry, shame, guilt, and depression that, that I was living that life and that I wasn't certainly a safety-sensitive position as a family practice doctor. I was making life changing and life-supporting decisions for people while I was under the influence. I just didn't want to admit it to myself. Oh. I knew it, and there was the shame and guilt, and that perpetuated the continued use. Right, because you didn't want to feel like shit, not only emotionally, exactly. but physically. And we'll get into kind of the brain stuff in a moment. So once you got into help, what did that look like? What did that help look like for you? 
Well, I first went to the Prevention Health Plan doctor in West Virginia. I called him. I named Dr. Brad Hall. He's still the head of the West Virginia Physician Health Plan, and I contact him periodically mm-hmm. just to thank him over and over for his help. But he referred me to treatment. I went to uh, Alabama to just a standard rehab and met Dr. Mike Wilkerson, another addiction medicine doctor. I did not take to treatment like a duck to water. I'll put it that way. <laughs> I went there with the feeling I did this to myself. I did it of my own free will. No one held a gun to my head, made right. me drink. No one made me take the opiates. No one made me do any of those things. So my shame and guilt was basically unfettered at that point. I had no alcohol and drugs to help me cope. So I, I became very depressed. Right. I mean, my, my initial treatment was very depressing. Right. Because as physicians, and we spoke about this before, physicians are at a whole different level whether that the public expects them to be almost superhuman. And as a physician, the pressure to be superhuman is kind of standard. Would you agree? Yes, I would. Kind of no mistakes. Right. Really, really high. Um, despite your struggle and everything, was there a perfectionistic streak like you should have known better what's wrong with you? That kind of stuff go through your mind? Oh, I'll, I'll certainly. Even from the very first time that they sampled Vicodin to my office and I came in with severe hangovers and I tried a few, you know, I was just trying to survive because I had such a severe alcohol hangover. I was just trying to survive and work. But I knew these were controlled substances. They're controlled substances for a reason. I had treated opioid use disorder patients with chronic pain and we all knew the purpose that patient coming in. We knew what sort of history he was going to give us and certainly it's labeled as addict. And I didn't want to wear the label, but here I was doing it. So it was obvious. So very much shame and guilt. I mean, so the stigma continued internally as well, not just externally. And we'll get to that too. Um, And now, so walk me through what your recovery journey was like. Well, as we said, I had to hit the proverbial rock Rock bottom. bottom. Now, I don't advocate that my patients have to do that. Right. But that was the requirement for me, each one of us, it takes what it takes, sure. as they say. So uh, as I went there, then I'm in Alabama with no medical license and no driver's license and a sober living house or halfway house, and I'm on food stamps. I had burned every bridge that was possible for any professional or personal support that I might get, so I was stuck. Uh, and it, w- it took that for me to finally open up and embrace the recovery community in Birmingham. Mm-hmm. So mostly out of sheer boredom, I started going to a lot of meetings. <laughs> I got a sponsor. I was even going to work through 12 steps and in my mind, in spite, to show you it doesn't work. So oh, interesting. I got a sponsor. I got a sponsor. We worked the 12 steps. It took about a year. I was honest with him. Mm-hmm. And at the end of that year, my admission was, I was wrong. It, it worked. I lost the desire to drink and drug. Or if the five says in the rooms, don't leave till the miracle happens. I believe in miracles. But what happened was I lost the desire to drink and drug and actually can see the detriment and the problem with it. Then I went on to seek education about addiction, seek education about the neuropathology of addiction and what I had done to my brain 
as I was watching my own brain heal, which certainly took some time. Right. So um, that leads us into a really beautiful kind of segue is doing these steps like sober living, getting into um, the 12 steps. From there, what exactly happened? You didn't get right back into medical, get your license right away, no. right? So what was that process no, I, like? <laughs> I stayed at the, at the halfway house in in Bethlehem, Alabama for five years. It was ran by Robbie oh, wow. Keeble. He's oh. an addiction counselor himself, a great man, and I owed him a lot for allowing me to stay there and be resident manager for five years. I actually thought that was going to be my final resting ground, mm-hmm. and I was, at pe- I was at peace with that. I wanted to get back into medicine, but until some people reached out that had some power, that wasn't going to happen. So uh, both Jason Hunt, who I wrote the book with, and myself met Mike McLemore in mm-hmm. Alabama. He's in charge of the, the addiction counselor training in Alabama. And he told us both that we came to his facility in Huntsville and stayed a year. He could get us certified as addiction drug counselors once we passed the test. So I went to bring Birmingham to Huntsville and did that for a year. Well, once I passed the test, then I moved to Tampa, Florida, and worked at a place called DACO, D-A-C-C-O. It's a large criminal justice system referred treatment center. So I was an addiction counselor at a treatment center that had maybe 140, 150 guys. Uh, wow. Pretty sick, pretty sick guys. Not all of them wanted to get better either. <laughs> I'm sure not. <laughs> it, it was there that I was able to meet Dr. Scott Teitelbaum, the director of Florida Recovery Center, and also a big name in addiction medicine all across the country with AFAM. And wow. I went up for an interview with Dr. Teitelbaum. At that point, I had no license. Right. But Dr. Teitelbaum told me, well, it doesn't seem like there's any roadblocks if you can go to Florida Board of Medicine and get a training license. I'll take you as a fellow in addiction medicine. So there was a lot of hoops to jump through, wow. but I was able to get granted a Florida training license in 2016, which is seven years sober. Wow. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And then I spent two years with Dr. Scott Teitelbaum. Uh, once I completed the fellowship, I was able to go back to the Florida Board of Medicine, and they gave me a full unrestricted license. That's phenomenal. Okay. I mean, talk and about many, kind of the... Many, many, Many years. Many, right? many cheers. Right. We're sharing in the parking lot that day. I, I can tell you that. I can't even imagine. It's kind of like the phoenix rising from the ashes. Completely everything was taken from you, and you had to kind of rebuild everything. I mean, not only did you live in a sober living, you were you became the resident manager, almost saying that's your calling now. You'll just do that, and you were totally at peace with that, as you said. And then you move on, and but getting that license, uh, that training license initially, that was through addiction medicine, correct? Did you apply for other medical schools before that? No, that that was for the fellowship, postgraduate training in addiction medicine. So the license I petitioned Florida for was a training license for someone who graduated medical school, but was doing postgraduate training. And Florida's a unique state. All states don't have that. Many right. states I would have had to petition for a full license. I didn't even know that when I moved to Florida. So many, many wow. things lined up 
that had to line up almost to the perfect sequence of hitting a lottery, to tell you the truth. Wow, that's amazing. Yes. If, if those things hadn't have lined up perfectly, I wouldn't have, have been able to be a practicing physician again. Right. Um, and with all of this going on, I mean, this internal stigma, I mean, there's internal stigma. I don't know if people call it that, but that shame and humiliation and guilt. Um you know, I want to ask a little bit what now, I mean, you've had a lot of sober time and based on your book and research, we know that the brain takes a couple of years, hopefully to heal if it's purely abstinent um, from substances. What works for you now to stay sober? Well, what works for me now, I, I continue everything I learned in my training. I continue everything I talk about with my patients, meaning I certainly remain abstinent for many mind-altering substances. I openly share with my internal medicine physician who I see, I gave him my book. So I, he knows that I have substance use disorder. I mm -hmm. saw a gastroenterologist for a colonoscopy. I told him mm -hmm. I'm mm -hmm. an open book about my about my disease and about my vulnerability now. So that's, that, that's empowering and, and gives me a lot of freedom. I, I also get a lot of freedom by sharing that and helping others with it. That this is a disease that can be recoverable just like diabetes, just like hypertension. And in many other chronic diseases, I realize I still have a vulnerable dopamine reward system. If I stop my treatment, if I stop my lifestyle, my sober support group, my continuing to work in 12 steps, my continuing to help other people, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll go right back to the same condition. Science tells us that. No different than I do have type 2 diabetes, but it's basically in remission. My A1C is normal now. That could change in three months very easily. I could change my diet, stop my metformin, mm -hmm. stop going to the gym. Immediately, my A1C goes up to 8 or 9, and I've got full-blown diabetes again. I look at addiction exactly the same way, and I'm no more ashamed that I'm a recovering addict alcoholic than I am that I'm in remission from type 2 diabetes. Well, that I look at them exactly the same. I love that because that, re that actually reduces stigma. So once you understood the science of, of actually what is really going on in your brain, um, what happened to you? What was your perspective about yourself then? Well, initially, I was angry. That I did, I was angry with myself that I didn't learn this when I was younger. But also working the twelve steps and and a lot of good recovery people taught me along the way that that's wasted energy and wasted anger that I can't change the past. Mm -hmm. But if there's any way that I can use my past to benefit me or others and put a positive spin on it, then it has value. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, and you mentioned in your book that that shame, guilt, and humiliation, once you understood the science that you weren't a bad human being, did that shame and, and humiliation and guilt dissipate? Yes. Slowly, but yeah. Ugh. I mean, there were even times in Birmingham, uh, uh, a lot of the guys, they called me affectionately Dr. Chuck because they did call me Dr. Chuck, but they come in with little earaches and little things that I'd tell them what home remedy they could do. And they think, oh, what kind of doctor were you again? I said, I'm the kind that doesn't have a license. That's the kind of doctor I am. And so I, I continued in recovery to, 
to help people. And I love medicine. I always loved helping patients, interviewing patients, mm -hmm. educating patients. Uh, once the door finally opened up to get the training license in Florida, I was ecstatic. And then as I said, once in 2018, when I got the full unrestricted license, wow. there were a few hours in the parking lot of grateful tears that were shed. Ah, oh, well, I think that's amazing to, you know, to, to know that patients actually can look to you and see that you actually know what it's like. Um, because you mentioned in your book also, um, and I've gotten this too, how would you know what it feels like? So if a patient comes in with substance use disorder and they're talking about certain things and they're like, you have no idea what it's like, what is your response to that? Well, I quickly tell them, yes, I do. I've went through opiate withdrawal about a hundred times or more in, in my life. And I give them, I give all my patients a copy of my book. Mm -hmm. And I, I noticed even the most difficult patients that I'm sure you're familiar with that will soften them up and give me just a little edge way to get in so that they'll give me a more full and accurate history and also be open to my suggestions for mm -hmm. the plan of treatment. Because I get many that no, look, I just need to detox. Once I get this monkey off my back, I'll be okay. Well, they already trust me some because they know I've been there, and they're willing to listen. Now, all don't take my advice, certainly. Sure. But many do because of that self-disclosure, and they get the vibe that, okay, I guess he does know. Well, let's talk a little bit about your book, Understanding Addiction, No Science, K-N-O-W, Science and No Stigma, N-O, Stigma. I love that title because I think when I was talking to clients, when we talk about data, like research, like, hey, you're not alone. And by the way, you're not an asshole. You weren't, you're not a bad human being, but you got a bad disease. There's that. Um, tell me a little bit about your book and highlights that might be helpful to people who are listening. Well, one of the things that, that Jason and myself, we kind of stumbled on was that we did self-disclose and it had worked for us with patients, despite much of the medical community being opposed. Right, to right. Disclosure. So one of the ways that I had always learned the best myself was a clinical case presentation, like you did the New England Journal of Medicine every week for many, many years. Mm -hmm. I read a study of the weekend. I like that style of teaching. So as we started our book, that's what we did. We put my story, we put Jason's story. Then we started with chapter three and four of the pathophysiology of the disease. We want to teach patients about the survival system, mm -hmm. the dopamine reward system of the brain in, in a fashion that patients and families could certainly understand that we didn't want them to be neuroanatomists or neurophysiologists, but we did want them to know a few brain parts and a few neurotransmitters so they could understand just how the, the wheels ran off this thing. Anyway. Right. And then the, then the rest, we talk about risk factors. Who is this likely to happen to? Uh, what are comorbid conditions? And then importantly, what we know from studying physician, airline pilots, and nurses, what sort of long-term treatment plans have been scientifically proven to work? Mm -hmm. And we know that with those three groups of people. I love that. So let's get into it a little bit more. Tell me about that 10% number. 
it's 10%, 15%, and you can do that by any population you that you want, but just see how many people do the food screening, how many people go to rehab, how many people get involved in criminal justice system because of addiction. It's 10 to 15%. We know that, but in the United States, what, 20 to 30 million people have this disease that's studied over and over out of our uh, 250, 260 million people, however many they have. So that is the population. And most of the time, at least over 50% of the time, they're the direct genetic link, a primary or a secondary relative who had the disease of addiction. Whenever I give this talk to junior high or high school kids who seem pretty immune at that point, they maybe they've sampled some wine or, or some uh, marijuana right. or something, right. but they're not maybe not too advanced. But I think, how about an uncle, a grandfather, a cousin? Uh, you know, most mm -hmm. hands will go up, oh, yeah, we have an uncle, you know, at Christmas time, we're all yeah, can't get around him because he's drunk and there's all sorts of problems. Mm -hmm. And I said, I want them to know what risk that is for them. That's such a major risk in any genetically predisposed disease, over 50%, that they will get substance use disorder in their life. And it gives them a little forewarning of what the risks are. Also, uh, dual diagnosis, many will once you get them totally alone, talk mm -hmm. about adverse childhood experiences that we have the, right. the little uh, screening tool in there for mm -hmm. emotional, physical, sexual abuse of the child. Because this dopamine reward system has not matured yet, and trauma, which results in cortisone yeah. relation factor being released, damages the system, makes it more vulnerable. Other one, we talk about age of early youth. Many patients that I admit sure. started 9, well, 10, 12. Right. I started myself 14, 15 with the football team. It was, it was peer pressure to drink mm -hmm. the wine, to drink mm -hmm. the vodka. Uh, and high tolerance, which is looked at as a admirable quality of much of our society. Right. But you know, to more milligram of the chemical. So the fact that as a high school senior, I could drink a whole fifth the liquor at the prom. And still standing, that was not a good sign. No, that's a warning <laughs> sign. And it was, it was, it should have worn an ominous warning to mm -hmm. me, but I, I didn't know. I think I want to go back to that because, the, as we know, the brain is amazing. And, and with the addictive medicine, we now know that there, you mentioned the vulnerable dopamine reward system. Tell me a little bit about that. Like, give me a metaphor that can help people understand what that means. Uh, quite often, I think that we don't even need functional MRI scans or our fancy diagnostic testing. We can tell who is the vulnerable simply go to any restaurant you want. You see someone there with, say, a margarita. Right. And maybe they have one, maybe they have two. And you go up to them and say, hey, you know what? You are a lucky customer. Ten <laughs> more, free margarita. Nine out of ten people are going to decline that offer. Well, why would they decline it? And you ask them, they say, well, I don't like the way ten makes me feel. Right. Well, for one in ten of us, we're going to accept that offer. The reason is we have... G subtype 2 receptors, the dopamine receptors in that midbrain that can accept those large dopamine rewards where the others, they simply 
bounce off and cause dysphoria. They don't feel good. They get sweaty. They get nauseous. They get dizzy. They, the euphoria they get is quickly overran by the bad feeling. So essentially, as one analogy I use with patients, if you're watering your lawn or you're watering the driveway, okay, you water the driveway, the water runs off. If you water the lawn, it's absorbed. The people who are at risk of this disease absorb that massive amount of dopamine. Then the troubles really start. You get depleted dopamine. You get down regulation of receptors. Tolerance develops. So you have to use more and more of the substance. You're, you're chasing that water in the lawn the rest of your life, but you never can get it where it was the first time because mm-hmm. those receptors won't take it. They can't take two. It's two to 11 times anything normal that comes out with our other substances. But that's just the start of addiction. Right. As it becomes advanced. And receptors become downregulated. Dopamine stores get depleted. So normal rewards such as exercise, eating when you're hungry, escaping danger, even sex, right. don't register anymore. One, you mentioned the example of another one that I use for that is, what can you hear after you go to a rock concert the next day? You get down regulation of the receptor. You couldn't hear anything but ringing in your ears. Well, after we rang that bell with high levels of dopamine over and over, normal dopamine releases simply don't register for reward. Right. So, like, one person can smell a dozen roses and go, wow, that smells good. A person with that kind of brain formulation has to smell like a hundred or a thousand to maybe reach similar of enjoyment. Oh, those are roses. Is that, would that be accurate too? That's that's an excellent placement. Uh, And when I give the talk to patients and families, I'll say, but that's just the start. We have chapter four of the book that talks Mm -hmm. about once this dopamine reward system is dysregulated, you get poor functioning of the prefrontal cortex due to decreased oxygenated hemoglobin. The analogy I use, you pulled up to the gas tank and you put 50 octane gas in your car. Well, it still runs, but it doesn't run very good. Right. We still make decisions in active addiction, mm-hmm. both sober and hungover, either one, but they're not good decisions. Our oxygenated hemoglobins greatly diminish. Right, so and our brain activity is less, right? Brain activity is less. Yeah, actually, metabolism, and it's seen on functional MRI. We can show it. It, it mar- markedly decreased oxidative hemoglobin, translate decreased metabolism, translate poor decision, impulse control, risk benefit. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the reason why the disease has such hallmark of symptoms of uh, infidelity, financial instability, uh, interaction with the criminal justice system, right. we simply can't tell right from wrong. Not as good as we could. Maybe we could tell a little, but it's staggered enough right. that it causes us life's devastating problems. And that was the perfect example. Right. I mean, you were writing prescriptions for yourself over and over again, knowing I shouldn't be doing this, but yet couldn't stop. So you have a car that cannot steer and cannot stop. That was one of the metaphors you used. I'm yeah. like, oh my God, it's a fucking train wreck. Right. And, and many people go, I have a broken brain. And I just say, you know, your brain is an asshole sometimes, or it's a shit show sometimes, but people can recover. I think that's a really important thing to note. Um, as a physician, now you teach other doctors to kind of be more astute 
of the symptoms. So what are some of the things that you're teaching doctors who who don't normally, it's not a prerequisite, right, to be an MD and OD is addictive medicine. Is that true to this day? No, I was I was very proud at the University of Florida that we did have medical students do a mandatory month through the rotation of addiction uh-huh. medicine. Uh, Jason, when he went to school in the 80s and when I went to school in the 70s, addiction mm-hmm. medicine wasn't even mentioned. I had no training in addiction medicine, mm-hmm. they did mention that cocaine activated the pleasure center of the brain. Now I don't even call this the pleasure center of the brain, this is the survival mm-hmm. uh, center of the brain. So what we do with, I have physicians, I have psychiatric residents that rotate through with me now. We drive home, it's called SBIRT, screening, brief intervention, referral to treatment. This is from AFAM, American mm-hmm. Society of Addiction Medicine, advocate that's for many in the US. So we want primary care physicians, ER physicians, any of the other specialists, because they're going to see 10% of the population oh, yeah. has their disease. So it's not like you have to search your office to find <laughs> And then they go through some brief screening and then a brief intervention. Uh, we have many studies to show patients listen to what their physician tells oh, them. That's yeah. very powerful. That's very powerful. When they hear from the physician, uh, he doesn't just say, well, you know, I think you need to cut back on your drinking. But he said, look, I think uh, you've answered some of these questions affirmatively. I think you need to see another specialist and be evaluated for substance use disorder. Mm -hmm. At that point, that's the best intervention you can get because they're getting that from someone they trust. Obviously, they went to them for for their health. And he, he or she is telling them, hey, I think you have this, too. No different than, okay, I think you need to start this insulin. I think you need to start this blood pressure medicine. So the answer word is really what we try to educate all healthcare professionals on. Do the screening, intervene, and then facilitate them referral to a treatment facility and program that you trust. Right. And even as a patient um, or a client, are there some things they can kind of ask themselves, too? Something like the cage or something you mentioned? Yeah, the cage was what Dr. Brad Hall asked me when I went to see him 13 years ago. Uh I had heard heard of it, but I didn't know it exactly. But he only went through two. And I went, I'm I'm yes to all those dots. And he said, okay. The the cage is an acronym for have you tried to cut back and you couldn't? Did you get annoyed when someone called you out over your Mm -hmm. drinking or your use? Did you ever feel guilty? about your drinking or your news. And the last one, then I opener. Did you have a drink before you went to the party? Did you have a bloody Mary before you went to play golf that day? But a, an eye opening, not necessarily within the morning, but before, before something. Right. A yes answer to just one of those questions should prompt a referral for an evaluation. And that should be standard care, right? Yes. That, that should be taken with the blood pressure, the pulse, yeah. breast cancer screening, pap smears, substance use disorder screening needs to be there too. Yeah. Um, I mean, and that kind of, you know, again, you talk pretty heavily on screening and intervention and, and, and that kind of leads into how do you, what needs to change in terms of approach to treatment? You mentioned uh, earlier the PHP, which has a pretty high success rate. Um, can you talk a little more about what your vision would be? If I said tomorrow, Dr. Dr. Smith, it's going to be 
an amazing treatment modality and, and formulation and format hitting all the medical schools and we're all going to get free training, whatever, what would, what things would have to be included? Well, I would like, as we just mentioned before that screening is more uniform and done by everyone and, and intense enough that we get the answer. Do they have any of those? Yes. To any of those questions, or if it's alcohol, well, the current guidelines are more than one drink a day or more than seven in a week for women for men more than two drinks a day or right. more than 14 in a week. Any of the any of the, the screening tools need to be put out there just the same as that. You know, are you short of the breath? How do you sleep? Have you had chest pain? The screening needs to be there. The then access to treatment. We need treatment that's affordable, treatment that most of the insurance carriers can cover, uh, most of the uh, national health plan, Medicaid, Medicare, right. so that these patients can get in and get the same kind of treatment that they could for cancer, that they could for stroke or heart disease, make that access more mm-hmm. uniform. Then the follow-up is, is possibly the most important part. It's not over, as you know, right. a month or two. Because it's, we know it's going to take at least two years for the brain to heal. And that's yeah. if we're successful with abstinence and successful in developing coping skills. So we need aftercare that involves monitoring so that they do continue to be assured that they, like they do with airline pilots, physicians and nurses, assured that they remain abstinent. So random uh, testing. Right. Also, the access to cognitive behavioral therapy, mm-hmm. uh, DBT, whatever form of therapy needs to be there. Right. That their dual diagnosis needs are being met, PTSD, bipolar disorder, get the fact they have good psychiatric care. There's been a push that I'm, since you work in the field, I'm sure you're well aware of, of, of mental health trying to get focused also. Right. Well, this goes hand in hand with that because sure our patients all. It's very difficult that I don't have a dual diagnosis patient. I've never met one. <laughs> I agree. If they have disorder, there's some other symptoms of mental health going on there too. And then right. that be continued for at least two years. Now, at that point, we have a lot of studies and, and scientific things with functional MRI scans to show that their disease is effectively in remission at that point, and they may be self-sustaining meaning that they know how to continue the coping skill and that they set up a lifestyle and they become much, much lower risk to drink or, or use illicit drugs or even prescription drugs again. So, I mean, that's very promising, right? Because I think a lot of folks in the field and also folks who experience addiction and recovery or however they want to frame that um, feel like they will always be addicted that they will always be in some form of recovery. And then there's another school of thought, which is I'm already recovered. Like if I am diabetic and I am managing my diabetes, am I in recovery of diabetes? That's exactly the way I look at it. Right? (laughs) So so I've I've been to millions, not millions, but hundreds of of 12-step meetings, and I've heard the little argument about recovering or recovered. But we don't have that argument about diabetes. But we shouldn't be having that argument about addiction. If you've been diagnosed with substance use disorder, you have a vulnerable dopamine reward system, and it's never going to go away. <laughs> your risk factors that put you in that place, your age of early years, adverse childhood experiences, 
uh, dual diagnosis could be better controlled, high tolerance, all those things, they're not going to go away. And so no more than I would think 13 years sober, I can go out and have a drink tomorrow. Of course not. Mm-hmm. Of course not. No more, no more than I would stop my exercise, stop my metformin, stop going and then they open my A1C though. Why did that happen? <laughs> right. Right. And, you know, I think that's an important distinction and they can kind of continue to have that dialogue. Um, are you recovered? Are you in recovery? Um, all we, what we do know is that there's treatment and that it works. And we're getting more and more research suggesting that people can heal, can recover from this disease. Their brain does heal with abstinence. Um, that we do know. So what we call that, that's up to you versus your point of view. Would you agree? I would agree, yeah. <laughs> and we're just looking for success here. Right. In the management, you know, success in the management of the disease. And many of the cancers that may go five years, 10 years, 15 years before they call remission. But I actually like looking at substance use disorder as remission Mm -hmm. or active. It's one or the other. Well, that's interesting because I don't know how people feel about that, but remission sounds like any other medical condition. You know, like cancer. (laughs) Like if someone's like in remission with cancer, we're not like, well, I don't know. We're more like, well, good for you. That's amazing. Right? If someone's in remission with diabetes, that's good. <laughs> also, when they tell me, as the, as the primary care physician, I was someone in remission, probably vulnerable from breast cancer, from leukemia, it also puts me on high alert that they're vulnerable. That's right. Before a recurrence. So it helps, you know, tune me in a little more. So, for example, a patient who then long-term remission or, or recovery from mm-hmm. alcohol or drugs, I'm going to be very cautious what I prescribe. They may not get an Ambien prescription. <laughs> right, probably not. Mm-hmm. Or an opiate. They may not get a clonazepam, <laughs> or flying on the airplane. You have to be more cautious because of their risk factor, mm-hmm. simply that they have a vulnerable system, that their disease is in remission. So patients know that. The healthcare providers need to know that also. I think that's that's very very important. As you know, there there are problem drinkers, gray area drinkers who are now and people who are really getting more into wellness. We have younger generations who are actually are moving towards wellness. Um, and so, sober curious has been around since 2012, but there's more and more momentum. Um, what are your thoughts about folks in sober curiosity mindset and the effect that might have. I applaud that so much when I see it. One of the comments that I use with patients all the time, uh, if I get patients come in, they're not sure. You know, I got a DUI, but I really only drink a few times a year. Doc, I don't think I have the disease you're talking about. Well, I propose to them a sober lifestyle, whether they don't have substance use disorder because they had consequences for one, but one of the lines I use, I said, let me ask, did you ever go to your doctor for a wellness check? And he said, I, I think you should start drinking alcohol. <laughs> he might as well say, I think you should start smoking cigarettes too. <laughs> obviously, one of those are not for a, that we're health conscious and, and hopefully our generation now, our society 
the time that we live in is health conscious. We all want to be the happiest, healthiest people we can be. Someone that doesn't really need psychiatric evaluation because they have some sort of problem. You don't want to be the happiest, healthiest person you can be. That's the problem. It needs evaluation. And by wanting that, sober, curious, uh, what is the dry January? Right. What do they want to do? Mm-hmm. I always challenge people out to tell you what, give me any amount of time period you're willing. One month, six months, one year, alcohol and substance free. Come back. If your life's not better, you made your decision. But we all know <laughs> what the answer is going to be. Right. And realistically, at the beginning, it's hard, um, especially if you have you know, severe substance use disorder. It is not easy. I think one of the biggest ruse is once you're done using, your life is fucking phenomenal. When in fact, it's hard, right? Like you just said earlier on, you got more depressed. You know, your dopamine is lower and it's not used to being that low because it needed the substances to raise awareness and like get everything normalized, right? It's like an equalizer on a, on a stereo. Um, I, I think this is super important. And again, your book is understanding addiction, no science and no stigma. Um, tell me a little bit how you got to that title. It's so clear. (laughs) Well, Jason and myself, we went back and forth. We, we, we wanted it to sound educational, but we wanted, we both kind of like little play on words, the, the, the no fire, no stigma, uh, we put thought about recovery titles and actually give Jason the credit. He he uh, threw this one out one day, and I and I knew as soon as I heard it, I, I like that one. Mm-hmm. I like that one because we know the stigma that the disease drives people away from treatment. It drives continued use. It, it blocks funding or treatment. And it, the stigma is so huge with addiction that it, it needed to be on the title. Yeah, we wanted people to understand that it was a disease, and the same as many other diseases through history, breast cancer, HIV, mm-hmm. many other diseases, the stigma can only be relieved by education and knowledge. Absolutely. I love that. And with that knowledge, I mean, I want to kind of go back to your vision of treatment for a second, because your book does mention it. Um this is the education piece. Like you mentioned the PHP program. For many of us, that just means partial hospitalization, which is like outpatient, but more frequent. There's intensive outpatient, which is less frequent as an outpatient kind of um, adjunct to residential treatment for some. Um, Tell me about this PHP program for pilots, physicians, and nurses, and why can't anybody else do it? Well, I actually went to an addiction conference not too long ago. One of the speakers said, imagine if physicians, nurses, and airline pilots had a secret treatment that offered 90% success for a disease that only offers 5 to 10% of success for the general public. Well, there would be an outrush of anger. I really can't believe you're keeping this from us. Right. Well, that's what that's what physician health plans, the EMS program for pilots, or nursing health plans are. They are two to five year programs that involve everything I told you before. They involve monitoring so that we know patients remain abstinence from mind altering substance, but more they involve the coping skill development through therapy, through twelve right. step mutual aid, uh, through general 
fitness, through psychiatric fitness. So they monitor and ensure good medical care with the patients. So that's what we need for addiction. No different than, than uh, that we have standard cancer follow-ups with breast cancer, you get chest X-ray this year, bone scan this year, do different things. For a disease to be successful, that it needs to be implemented in. But the one uh, speaker that I heard, what, what if we were actually hiding this? We had a 90%. I can see this on the front of a magazine now. Most people would think it was the National Enquirer. We said 90% success treatment of addiction. Most people aren't going to believe that. Right. I'm like, what the hell? Why don't we know about that? Because what you're talking about, and you also mentioned this in your book, is kind of like recovery capital. Is, is that right? Can you say a little more about that and how that kind of fits in with the PHP? Well, recovery capital, I wanted to run one study that actually would show physicians' credit scores when they entered treatment and what their credit score was five to 10 years later. And so recovery capital isn't just monetary, but it's relationship capital. It's like esteem in the community, your own self-esteem. The interactions with the criminal justice system. I finally got my driver's license back, for example. Right. All those are recovery capital. So if one day I'm at someone's wedding and they have a champagne fountain, someone tells, oh, come on, dude, you're, you're dissing the bride because you're going to have some champagne. I remember, let's see, what would I be at high risk to lose if I drink this champagne? Yeah. Well, obviously, my job, my career, my wife, my house, my car. All that's recovery capital, and most importantly, my life, my health. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we need all of that. And so with that PHP program, they know that, right? I mean, we yeah. talk about um, that partly the opposite of addiction is connection. So community is super important. No one can do them this by themselves, not well anyway, right? So part of that recovery capital is your relationships, like you were saying. Also, outside of your your like marriage or relationship, romantic relationships, but friendships too, social. Um, like what kind of things do you do now to have fun, for instance? I, I, tell, I tell patients this all, all the time. 13 years ago, if I did anything socially with you, you drank and drunk, or at least you drank heavily, <laughs> and probably gambled too, because I went to a casino with them. I drank with them, I drugged with them, I golfed with them, all those things. Today, 13 years later, if you drink and drug, I don't do anything socially with you. But I do everything that I used to do. I go to sports bars. I watch games. I, I go to minor league baseball games. I go to Miami Dolphin football games. <laughs> I go, I golf. I swim. We go to the beach. Many of the things that I used to do, which were impaired by substances, but I tried to do, I do all those things now. But I'm th- my peers today are much different. My peers today don't drink and drug. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that's very important because that's human nature. You know, one example I use, I get patients sometimes who say, you know, I'm not influenced by peers. I'm my own man kind of guy. Right. Say, well, let me ask you something. If you're over here at Dolphin Stadium, packed, everybody runs to the exit. Are you going to say anything? Human nature, you're not. You're going to run the exit. You may be after people while we're running, (laughs) but you're going to run. Well, there's that subtle influence there if you're around other people who are consuming alcohol, smoking marijuana, smoking crack, whatever they happen to be doing. We are influenced at some 
simply because of human nature. Right, because we kind so, of run in packs, right? We kind of do that. With, that. with that sort of animal. You said also that's really important that the people you're around don't drink or use either. So you are now reimagining kind of the rituals of what you used to do into something brand new. It's kind of like repurposing in some ways. What do you think? Mm-hmm. And I think that's exactly what it is. I tell patients a lot of times, alcohol and drugs, particularly alcohol, were so important to me that I didn't do any of those events that I was telling you about. Right. I didn't do alcohol there. I always tell patients, a big sports fan, obviously, mm-hmm. I told you before, but if you told me 13 years ago, hey, I've got your 50-yard line ticket to the Super Bowl, you can go. It's all, it's all fair enough. But... You can't drink. I'll just watch it home. Thank you. That is the kind of hold they've had on me. So imagine something that you would absolutely love to do, but if you can't do it without that survival, that fake survival stimulation you're mm. getting from your substance, you simply decline it. Because I think about that all the time. But if someone would have bought me Super Bowl tickets, no alcohol in the way. It's like, why bother? <laughs> What's exactly. the point? I can stay home. And drink and watch right. it on TV. It's better anyway. Blah, blah, blah. Right. <laughs> but now if you got that, what would you say? I oh, should take absolutely. it. Right? Not even a discussion, right? I mean, and that's I the thing. In where there is no alcohol. Right, right. I mean, and 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 now you have discernment. Now you know what, what the risks are for yourself. And I think that's where boundaries come in too. It's just know your limits. It doesn't, like so many people are FOMO, like fear of missing out. So they don't do anything at all. It's all or nothing, right? With the addictive brain, it's all or nothing. They can't see in between. Well, one I tell patients a lot, you know, none of us like to be tricked. Right. Alcohol and drugs are a trick to our reward system. They are a trick to our survival system. And that really helps me these days to know that that elation that would come from the opiate or elation from the alcohol and cocaine, it's not real. Right. It's, it's like a... It's real. And it comes with such a pride. Oh, yeah. Well, I pursue something. So, so that feeling of, you tricked me before. Mm-hmm. No, you're not tricking me again. Right, because that's a wolf in sheep's clothing, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. you mentioned in your book, and I've, and I've been um, talking about this too, is our brain has evolved over centuries, and having these kind of addictive substances is fairly new to our brain, correct? Our brain is not like, oh, yeah, this is pretty normal. It's like, wow, this is super great. It's like food, water, it must be safe, so my brain's going to want that. Yes, there's no signal for those of us who are vulnerable. There's no signal to deter us or to get us away from it. It was all good. That high dopamine, and it was accepted and rewarded. This is three, four, five times better than anything I ever did to save my life. So it it leaves a very strong memory in the hippocampus, as you know. So it drives future, it starts driving future behavior. I do always tell patients and even the junior high kids, the vulnerable people are real the ones I'm focusing this education on. Mm-hmm. The other people would care, could care less that they've been with alcohol free. Nine out of 10 people that say, well, there won't be any alcohol that the been so what? I may drink a cup of champagne at someone's wedding, but I didn't really want to. Well, mm-hmm. those aren't the people. So I really focus on 
who is the vulnerable for the disease? Like who is the vulnerable for type two diabetes? Who has the risk for cancer? Who has the risk for heart mm-hmm. disease? Mm-hmm. I think that we focus in on risk factors as all the other branches of medicine do with heart disease. We're, we're going to get better results. Absolutely. And, and because of this practice that you have, um, and the clients that you now see, obviously, who suffer from substance use disorder, what's it like working with those folks now as opposed to early on when you were working with maybe not with that specialty? It's, it's extremely rewarding. I like general medicine and family mm-hmm. practice medicine. I like to 40 years ago, I fell in love with medicine, but this is so much more rewarding. I've never dealt with a subset of the population mm. or a disease where I can have such a profound effect on their treatment, on the rest of their lives and their family. So it, it, it's beyond rewarding. Wow. Well, it's been such a pleasure. If there is one thing that you would share with one, other physicians, and then two, a person who is curious about you know, whether they have addiction issues or not. Um, Very two different camps, but they do cross over. What would you say to each of them? Be at least open-minded enough to seek professional care and get an opinion. The same as I would, and I tell families that for interventions, if you had a family member who had a chronic cough, you had a family member who got diaphoretic, short of breath, some and tempt them that cause concern. This one's the same way. And it's really easy to spot these people if they're having too many drinks or answering yes to any of those questions. At least ask them, my plea would be open, be open-minded enough to seek professional help. And that can come from many different directions, you know. Absolutely. And if I were a physician listening to this, not having a whole lot of addiction medicine exposure, but now I'm seeing more and more clients reporting this kind of stuff. What would you tell them? Well, I'd like them to either read my book or read (laughs) one of the other books Mm -hmm. on screening uh, and the disease of addiction and referral to treatment that they, there's many continuing education programs uh, through ASAM that they could utilize so that they start becoming more effective in appropriate and proper referral for the people, the population that need it. Now, what it, if every physician now knew new med students coming in, getting um, exposure to, you know, addiction medicine, and, and now there's more treatments than ever any time at all, and there's more access to information. Some of it's bullshit, we, we know, but there is a lot of, lot of, you know, data out there around recovery and substance free and, and all the, the risks of substances. Um, now that there might, there's new generations of med students with this, um, <clears throat> what do you think the effect would be, Nan, if they were all exposed to some form of addiction medicine? Oh, I think we would see the, the, the need diminish beyond recognition from what we're seeing now. I don't think we'd be talking about opioid crisis. Mm-hmm. I don't think we'd be talking about uh, deaths from alcohol and motor vehicle accidents being anywhere near they are. I, I think it would be a completely different different picture because, as you mentioned, people do take very seriously advice from their healthcare professionals. Absolutely. I mean, 
you all carry such weight, whether you should or not. Okay, that's the reality. <laughs> and for you to actually, you know, we go into medical offices and we see certificates and like, wow, these people are really super smart and they have a lot of expertise. But what we don't see in here often enough, some like a doctor like you going, you know what, I actually know what it's like to feel like shit all the time. I actually know what it's like to wake up wanting to die because I used way too much or not enough. I actually know what it's like to be depressed and find everything dark. Um, and I wonder that power of kind of that disclosure, knowing that as professionals we're told not to, because it's not either about us, but it very much is about them. So I, I really, you know, highly respect that you are on my podcast sharing, by the way, I am in recovery and I wrote this book. Um, it takes a lot to do that. There's a huge degree of vulnerability. I don't know if, if you think about it that way, but I just want to acknowledge, I think it's amazing because you don't have to, you didn't have to, you could have kept this very close to the chest. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. It was a process. The first time I did that speaker meeting in AA, I didn't sleep the night before. So it didn't come easy to me sharing the intimate details of my own disease. But over time, and with the reward of the success I saw in patients, mm-hmm. now it comes, it's second nature to me now. It's just part of your practice of care, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, um, well, I appreciate your time, Dr. Smith, um, and your expertise and the kindness that you have written about such a terrible disease and put a face to it and science around it. What's next for you? Are you writing another one or w- what's going on for you in the future? Um, no, I actually don't have another plan for, for another book just yet, but, uh, we have discussed a few things. Maybe uh, we would even tackle the medication-assisted therapy, which is a controversy uh, we talked about earlier. Do that. Uh, <laughs> That'd be great. <laughs> if, if anything, it would be to add a chapter to this book, or it mm-hmm. may even require a whole book itself. Mm-hmm. But I stay busy with, with my treatment of sure. addiction patients at the several facilities that I work at. It's really a joy. Well, it was an extreme joy to have you here. So thank you again. I appreciate your time, doctor. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate you having me. Thank you for listening to Recovery Plus Podcast, Fuck Yesterday, Focus on Today. I'm your host, Dr. Mainly Hennon, celebrating and honoring people in recovery one conversation at a time. This podcast is sponsored by Red Door Coaching and Consulting, and you can find my podcast on Amazon, Apple, and Spotify. Also, you can find me at my website at www.reddoorcc.com. You can email me at mhennon at reddoorcc.com if you're interested in transformational coaching. Thanks again for listening. Talk soon.